0: There's no one size fits all. The process of growing up is messy and complicated and different for each of us.
1: Welcome to Live Well, Be Well, a show to help high performers improve their health and well-being. Kelly Williams Brown had 700 bad days. Her marriage collapsed. She broke three limbs in separate incidents and her dad was diagnosed with cancer. It sparked a big depression. She's the inventor of the concept of adulting, becoming a New York Times bestselling author with her 2013 book, Adulting, How to Become a Grown-Up in 468 Easy-ish Steps. Her follow-up book is Easy Crafts for the Insane. In this episode, she's going to tell you how she coped through this and her strategies that you can use to deal with hard times in your own life. If anyone is listening to this and if they've heard the word adulting at any point in the last decade, it's because of your very first book called Adulting, okay, which is now actually in the Oxford English Dictionary, you are now ten years on from writing that book, Adulting. So, if we look about it at twenties versus thirties, what are some of the things that you are still learning about growing up?
0: Well, well, first, thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. I will apologize to anyone who might be listening for introducing that word into the world. My goodness, it is. Uh... I'm not going to say irritating, but a little, a little annoying every now and again. You know, I think it's really interesting. Now that I look back, I I feel like your twenties are sort of a process of getting yourself together, you know, and sort of Mm -hmm. figuring out how, how you can be an adult. And then your thirties become more of a time of meaningful connection. How do I connect to larger things? How do I have a community? How do I be someone that people can rely on who will show up for people? And so, you know, that is something that I still struggle with is being able to balance, you know, the time that I put into my work versus the time I put into my family and my friends and my neighbors and making sure that I really am there for other people. I feel like
1: I relate to that so much, that navigation of the 20s when it's super self-centered because you're basically trying Mm -hmm. to make it into the world. And then all of a sudden you have this thing in your 30s where you're like, wait, life is actually really short. And actually it's about yes. the community and the people around me that are, are super important. And I wrote about that a lot in my newsletter last week around the importance of that. And actually like how much time do we have left with those people that we love? Which right. is something when you're 20, you just don't think about, Right.
0: No, you don't. Actually, you know, it's interesting. One of my friends uh, who is a little bit older does this thing called intentional life planning. And he and his wife sat down with literally actuarial tables. And they were like, okay, we can expect to live about this many years. And we can expect that our parents will be around for the next, however, X many years. Their theory is that any big project in life, you know, that you were doing at work, you would say, okay, here's the deadline. Here's how you move backwards and steps from it. Like, what are the things that we want to accomplish? What are the things that we want to do? And your 30s really is a time of those questions of what meaningful thing that is larger than myself do I want to do in the time here? And how do I maximize the time I spend with the loved ones while also, you know, if, if your work is important to you, how, where do you want to be in that? If you want to, you know, have children, how, what kind of parent do you want to be? They're much larger questions to me than the questions that get asked in your 20s.
1: What are some of the most common adulting mistakes
0: that people seem to make? That's a really challenging question, and one of the really interesting things that I Found out as I was writing adulting is that, you know, we're all, we all naturally have different strengths. Some of us are very good at keeping a tidy home and some of us always know just what to say in a social situation. And some of us are sort of naturally excellent friends. And it's whatever you're not good at that you decide is the marker of an adult. Like, for example, I will never be the world's cleanest and tidiest person. I'm a little bit disorganized and a little bit chaotic. So of course, for me, something that, uh, has really been an adulting challenge, if you will, is learning to just sort of tidy my surroundings as I go through them. Like, do not just set something on a table. Everything in your house has to have a place where it lives. It wants to go to its home. Um, for other people, it's things like not always considering, the other person in the relationship, whether that's your personal relationship or uh, relationships with friends and family. For some people, it's quite the opposite of failing to be able to draw boundaries, perhaps between you and your parents and make that transition from that of sort of a caretaker, cared for person to, to people who love each other, but, but the reliance doesn't necessarily go one way or another. And finally for others, it's, it's just really struggling you know, to find work in our, you know, horrible capitalistic society that can it makes it so that you're not worried about money every single minute of every day. So I think everyone has different challenges. And you know, you could say little things like, oh, buy toilet paper in bulk, you know, and and that sort of thing. But there, there's no one size fits all. The process of growing up is messy and complicated and different for each of us.
1: Mm. And I think you know what, that's what that book the first book that you wrote, actually, even your like last book that you've written really brings that across, you know, that life is just not the simplistic linear route no. that I think so many of us think about in our early twenties, that like when we get to 30, we're going to have this, 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 you know, I thought I'd be married and have children and mm-hmm. all of these things. And it just, you know, life just didn't turn out that way. And actually, you know, my life was kind of chaotic, but actually it's kind of looking back on it, I wouldn't change a thing.
0: Yeah, same. And I think my life, if you had told me what my life would look like at 39 when I was 20, I would have thought, oh my gosh, I didn't do, you know... uh, what? Are you kidding me? And I think, you know what? I think that is actually the biggest adulting mistake is deciding that there is one thing, one job, one place to live, one person, whatever that one thing may be that will make you happy. Because the truth is, is that we can all be happy and find fulfillment in so many different contexts, you know, not, not Hmm. to make it deep. I always sort of assumed I would have kids, and then I didn't have kids. And I'm sure that my life with kids would have been really, really wonderful. But my life without kids is so rich and exciting and mine to pursue. And also one in which I can have so many great relationships and really be supportive of my community in a way that if I had kids, of course, the majority of my time would be with them. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think staying open to the possibilities that life brings to you and then in turn finding satisfaction in them. I forget who said, you know, the secret to happiness is not having more but being satisfied with less. And I think contentment in one's day-to-day life goes so far.
1: It does. Honestly, I think that it's something around having a flexible mindset. It's really, really mm-hmm. key and not having that fixed mindset, which is so important. And I love that you mentioned success there, right? Because I picked up on your opening statement, which you were like, I'm really sorry. I want to apologize for this word that's now being used all over the place mm-hmm. and being put in the Oxford dictionary. I want to say congratulations. That's such an amazing success to have. But I do know that, you know, you kind of, you struggled a bit with the success after writing that first book. Can you tell me kind of how that changed your life um, when you kind of sure. did your first book?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it really changed my life completely. I went from being a newspaper reporter at a you know sort of mid-sized town here in Oregon, which is on the west coast of the US, right above California, and all of a sudden, I had all these insane opportunities and things that looked really, really glamorous and exciting on paper, like flying to LA and talking about what if they made a TV show about my life. But in practice, I found them very scary because I had no idea how to navigate these things. You know, understandably, it put me in really different situations than than my friends and my colleagues. You know, I, it wasn't like I just had people to pick up and make these calls. And I felt really in the spotlight in a way that. I wasn't ready to be, and I also feel like people had so many ideas about who I was. They thought of me as maybe this very accomplished and put-together person, when in reality I wrote that book because I'm not an accomplished or put-together person and was trying to figure out how to become so. And it's it's interesting, you know, I think that a realization I've had sort of over the past couple years is that the writing life and the sort of being a personality is not the right life for me. It's a wonderful life for many people. But for me, that's not how I find satisfaction. I find satisfaction in sort of being, I I don't want to say a cog, but, you know, in in working on something with other people, a a, a thing that's much Mm. bigger than myself.
1: And so what did getting to that level of success actually teach you about success? Because I think I talk about this a lot on the show that when I was modeling in New York, you know, the Oxford Dictionary defines success as fame, wealth and social status. And basically at a very early age, I I kind of started to have all those three and actually I was probably my unhappier self. So looking back on it, you know, I define success very differently now, but how do you define success after getting to the stage that you went to?
0: Yeah, I mean I think, you know, one thing that really struck me about the sort of success that I had and I want to state for the record that I was incredibly lucky and I had the most incredible experiences and I like you I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it for a thing but nor would I want to ever go back to it. You know, you think, oh, when I have this, then I will be happy. And whatever it is, you it's this thing, you know, oh, I we'll be happy once I'm on the New York Times bestseller list and then you're there and you're like, okay, that was good. That was nice. And it's like a temporary reprieve of feeling bad about yourself. And really for me, the success that I feel like I have now comes from my, my relationships, my place in my community. And the fact that like, when I wake up in the morning, I feel good. I'm excited to go to my job. I am happy to see my boyfriend in the bed besides me because I love him and it's a happy relationship, you know? Uh, And I think it's important to distinguish between success and happiness. Mm. And success, I think, is an external thing and happiness is internal. And perhaps there are people out there who the external trappings, Bring them happiness, but I, th- I don't think that's the majority of people. I think we all think that that's going to happen, and then it when it does happen, if it does happen, it doesn't. It doesn't bring that internal change that we hope it will.
1: Mm. It's it's interesting because external success you can forever chase. You know, it's something that you can never stop chasing, and I think that's something that when people reach it, they go as you said. You know, watch the next phase as opposed to living with what you're talking about, which is that contentment. And I think that is something that is so entwined with the concept of this buzzword that we speak about longevity a lot now. You mm-hmm. know, we all talk about, you know, oh, what are all these kind of units that are going to make up a longer life? But actually at the core of it, it's human connection. And I love that that's kind of coming to your forefront. It just feels like the older you get, the worse you're becoming. And actually you start realizing that the simple things are the most important in one's life. And you mentioned that you're 39 now. Okay, mm-hmm. so... Going more into the midlife phase, I want to talk about your most recent book. Okay, now sure. this was very different to adulting. Very because, different. And, <laughs> as, as you mentioned, right, you were this. Wonderful reporter, you loved interviewing others and kind of bringing all of that terminology together and putting it into kind of a handbook for young twenty-two year olds to read and go. Okay, this makes sense to me about turning into an adult. For you, this is completely different. It's like flipping seats, and so now you are having to personally write about your life. And I would love for you just to give us, if you can, in thirty sure. seconds, because you might do better than me, but sum up the synopsis of Easy Cross for they Insane because. It is unbelievable when I read this book. Do you want to get more focused, improve your sleep, or support your energy levels? Then great news, because we've teamed up with my favourite functional mushroom brand, Blumen. The first 1,000 people to use the code LWBW1000 can try it for themselves for free. Now, many people struggle with short attention spans these days. Fortunately, there is a natural way to help improve these problems, and that is lion's mane mushroom. But how does it work? Well, lion's mane may improve neuroplasticity by helping repair damaged neurons and restoring healthy ones. And this is great news for anyone looking to improve their memory and focus. Now, I know what you're thinking, and no. They don't get you high, and they don't taste a mushroom. They are just full of the good stuff. All their blends have the highest amounts of fungal beta-glucan compounds, active ingredients on the market, and they're organic and double-extracted. So whether you choose Focus for cognitive function, Boost for all-day energy, Rescue for antioxidants, or Breathe for calming anxiety, each blend's designed to work for your needs. So head to bloomin.co.uk and use the code LWBW1000 at checkout. There's free mushroom powder for the first 1,000 listeners, meaning you'll get your first Bloomin' product completely free. There is also a link in the show notes.
0: Starting around age 32, I went through a wildly bad, uh, 14 to 18 months that included, but what was not limited to a divorce. I broke three of my four limbs in separate and unrelated incidents, including my elbow and of one arm and my shoulder of the other, uh, three weeks apart. So I didn't have any arms. I got into, uh, what was a really unhealthy relationship for both me and that person. Uh, I had a major, major, sort of abrupt falling out with my two very closest friends, which once I was in the psychiatric hospital was described as catastrophic loss of chosen family. Uh, My dad got cancer. My cat died. My grandmother died. I fell into a deep depression, and then I was put on a medication that, like, sent me into a mixed manic state. Like, I don't know if y'all have quite the warning labels that we have here in the U.S. on antidepressants, which I do recommend in our life-saving, you know, when carefully administered, it was really this total dissolution of the self and who I understood myself to be beforehand. Um, you know, of having had this, this very, very high level of success. You know, I got to go speak at NASA. I had a TED Talk. Uh, Swiffer paid me enough for a single day of hosting a a party with a dancing with the stars person that I was able to put a down payment on a house. You know, I went from that to being completely confined to a dog hair covered couch and ordering uh, Subway sandwiches. And that was about what I could do. So it was really a question of, okay, uh, your former life is gone. It's not coming back. Your former self is gone. I am a fundamentally changed person. So who am I going to be now and how do I reconstitute my life? And the crafts come in because really this whole time, all I was very capable of doing was crafts, like, and not, not good, talented. I'm making a quilt crafts, like little, like crafts that, you know, a a 12 year old with some amount of talent would really probably have been able to do better than me. But the point was that the crafting was doing something. It was this like small act of creation or small acts of beauty that I still was capable of. And so it was also a little bit, how do you find those little lifelines for yourself when everything is bad? And I'm happy to report, it's kind of funny because now sometimes people will read the book and be like, oh my gosh, are you okay? And I'm like, yes, we are a solid six years past everything, I am I am quite all right. That's why I was capable of writing the book. And while all that was extremely dramatic and made it seem like I'd been cursed by a witch for a minute there, I do think that that experience of something sort of catastrophic has happened, a loss, a series of losses, and I am different and I'm new in some ways, and and who is this new person, and how do I take the whatever good things I can find in that horrific situation forward, and how do I leave behind the things that are just going to haunt me? And I think, of course, with with the global pandemic, a lot of us had a lot of those experiences.
1: I think yours was quite a phenomenal catastrophic experience (laughs) compared to many people listening to this. It's one that like, I hope many people don't go through. Um, But there's twofold questions to that. Like, is it safe to say that this book was a response to maybe some of those expectations around Adulton? Because you kind of say, you know, it hit you at 32. And then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden there was like, you know, nearly two years of just severe pain that happened in your life. Um, Do you think that's kind of a safe assumption?
0: You know, I I don't think that I wrote it to be like, oh, I was wrong about adulting or you shouldn't wipe your counters because I do still think those things. And I still think that adulting is a very good book full of good advice from people who are not me. I think one of my things though that I did want to say in writing that book is that you can from the outside look like a very successful person and not be you can yeah. perhaps be a successful person and have that go away and then have a second act in a second life you know that that mm-hmm. things can come back together even when it really really seems impossible that they would and they might not come back together in the same way but my life today is the best life that I've ever had and um and a lot of it is due to the difficulties of that book and not only the lessons I learned, but, but the things I learned in terms of, all right, my mental health must be a priority for me. I have to have a, um, you know, an excellent doctor that specializes in that. I have to do my therapy. I have to do the things that keep me healthy. And, and those are not extras. Those are not things that I can let slide. And because I don't, then that allows me to live the rest of my life in the best way possible.
1: They're like your non-negotiables, aren't they? And it's so Correct. important to figure out what they are for you. Mm-hmm. And a question that I really want to ask actually is, you know, the challenges and rewards about writing your personal experience. Because as I mentioned, you know, at the beginning, you'd recently written from a reporter's perspective, but now all of a sudden you're writing from kind of your own vulnerability mm-hmm. and having to travel back into time to revisit some of those memories. And For me, I wrote my keynote talk last year, and it actually took me about a year to write this. And it was a lot about my life and my journey. Mm -hmm. And... I thought I could write this in six weeks. It's fine. And a year later, I was just there finishing up the keynote talk. And my God, it was like a therapeutic process. And it's, you know, I think it's really important to advocate as you did, going to therapy, talking to somebody, but it doesn't feel like the work is then done to go back and reflect and to write on those experiences, a whole new level of growth. So like for you writing this, which you know, my gosh, you had so much more. You had so much more happen to you in those two years than I did. But what are the challenges and rewards about writing that? Like how did you cope going through that process?
0: Yeah, I mean it it was it was a huge challenge. And one of the first things for me was because I think of myself and my writing more as craft, like I'm doing it for other people. Um, you know, there's people who are artists who are expressing something within themselves, a, a poet, you know, someone who writes a, a genius literary novel. That, that's not the kind of writing that I do. The kind of writing that I do, I, I do it in the hope that it will resonate with other people. So sort of one of my first steps was just looking at the experience and saying, okay, what parts of this might others see themselves in might be relatable to them. You know, there was some stuff that had to do with my career that I was like, well, this is really only relevant to someone who has written a very successful book and therefore might not be the most relatable or useful to others. There were also so many questions and concerns about privacy, about the privacy of, well, first, myself. You know, what do I share? What do I not share? But more saliently, the privacy of others in my book. You know, my ex husband is not going to get the chance to reply in kind. To this book. Mm-hmm. There were some things that happened between my friends and I that were so deeply personal and simply I could not tell those stories without revealing too much about them and their lives in a way that felt really unfair. And so there were those considerations. It was actually at sometimes, actually at many times, very, very difficult to sort of be in a better, healthier place and then have to take myself back to those places and really live in those places. Uh, I actually, believe it or not, did do a lot of reporting on this, but I reported with my family, with my friends. Like, what do you remember? What did this look like to you? And sort of like Mm -hmm. looking at that from a lot of different angles. In terms of the vulnerability of it or people knowing things about me, the very worst case scenario, which is that my partner's mother would read the book, uh, came true. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes it is a little awkward, especially if people don't know me in person for that to be their understanding of me. But on the other hand, what I figure is either they'll never meet me, in which case they can think whatever they like, and it really is is not a consequence either way to either of us. Or if they do meet me and do know me, then they will... Soon realize that that's a snapshot of my life and of me. It's not who I am now. It's a story about a specific time. Mm.
1: Well, I hope actually they just respect you. Like to be honest, what you've put in that book is going to help so many people. And I, you know, so much about this podcast is kind of amalgamating two things. It's around bringing. You know, amazing stories to the forefront of people that have been incredibly vulnerable and inspiring, and how their stories help change lives for others. And also, kind of, you know, the top scientists at the moment bringing that those studies to the forefront. And when you mix those two things together, when you can really communicate with people on stories, that's when you see changes in in health behaviors. You know, mental health. Someone might listen to this nice. and go oh my God, Kelly's really inspired me because, you know, she was at her all time low and now she's at her happiest place ever. And just Mm -hmm. to hear that is so much hope. And if we don't hear this, then actually we never feel there's a way out. And I think that's something that's so critical. So I just hope that people have respect, even if they, you know, even if they don't know you, it's so important.
0: Yes. And I've gotten, I've gotten so much wonderful, wonderful feedback and, you know, when you're in a dark place, I think our natural inclination is to think that we are the only person who has experienced this. We're the only person in this mm-hmm. situation. Like the self-hatred of like, you're disgusting. Look at you. How could you possibly have let yourself get to this place? And I think a lot of times realizing that, no, 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 like this is a human experience. This is something that people go through that that happens, that there are others who are there as well with you either right now or who have been That feeling of not aloneness is, is part of the hope that is so crucial to get us through those difficult times. And so that's why I wrote it. If I, if I didn't think that it would make a difference to people who hope, you know, hopefully are not in dark places, but perhaps are, then I wouldn't have written it because what would be the point in all that, you know?
1: And I think, you know, especially being a woman, speaking about your mental health struggles with ADHD and bipolar depression is also there may be many women out there that might be able to relate to that. And that's something that obviously you've kind of figured out and found out through your journey. And now you say, you know, having that doctor there and that treatment is so important. But how do you support these now? Because ADHD is coming up a lot more mm-hmm. in society as a conversation. So these two things together, and I know you mentioned earlier, you know, you're quite chaotic and your house is, you know, everything is... <laughs> (laughs) everywhere not that I can see that from this interview it looks pristinely perfect but how do you you. like support these things now because I think that's really important like you've obviously kind of come out the other side but what is it that's kind of got you there and, and how do you kind of keep a check on that I have a favor to ask 74% 74% of people that watch this podcast haven't hit subscribe and 15% haven't hit the bell to turn on notifications. I want this podcast to reach as many people as possible to keep sharing expert information and powerful stories to improve your life. So if you've ever enjoyed my podcast, please hit the subscribe button and turn on notifications. Doing this small favor will really help me.
0: Thank you. So there's two different things there. And actually, although there is an, an interesting overlap, which is that a psychiatrist once told me that one of the most difficult clinical distinctions to make is with women who have ADHD and who have what looks like depression, whether it is unipolar depression or it's bipolar depression, uh, because a lot of sort of the hyper focus of ADHD, when we get into that, can look a little bit like a hypomanic state. I've also learned so much about uh, bipolar as opposed to unipolar depression, which is what I thought I had. And indeed what most people think they have, but there is some more and more evidence that perhaps bipolar is much, much more common than we think. Uh, What a psychiatrist told me is that most of the time, if you're dysregulated, uh, it's going to be a depression. And a lot of times mania is not what we think it looks like, you know? Or or perhaps a, a true mania is, but a hypomania, which hypo means less than, is what most of us get. And the thing is, is for me, what were my hypomanias, which I still get sometimes, are not bad things. They look like me feeling pretty creative. They look like me being in a good mood. They look like me, instead of needing nine hours of sleep, maybe I need seven hours of sleep. And they simply don't cause problems in people's lives. Mm. Whatsoever, so they don't get diagnosed because you know we don't diagnose something that's not pathological, that's not causing an issue, until perhaps the person is at a crisis point in their life, and all of a sudden that mania becomes much more pronounced and much more problematic. You know, we think about somebody driving ninety miles an hour down, you know, the the interstate, and and that's simply not what it looks like. You know, and it, it's funny because even now sometimes I'll feel a little bit up. And I'll, I'll tell my mom and my boyfriend and they'll be like so concerned. And I'm like, no, 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 nothing is happening. Nothing bad is happening here. I would, you know, if I was saying, oh, I'm feeling kind of blue, I'm feeling a little depressed, that would be a very acceptable and normal thing for them to say. And they'd say, oh, I'm sorry. You know, let us know what we can do. And if I say, hey, I'm feeling like a little bit up. Let me know if anything strange is happening. They're like, is it okay? Do we need to call Mm -hmm. someone? And I'm like, nope, I'm just, I'm just doing some watercolors. You know Mm -hmm. the watercolors are turning Mm -hmm. out nicely, and and so I think us accepting that those natural ups and downs are part of a lot of people's mental health, and the ups don't have to be terrifying or pathological in the way that we're kind of used to thinking of them as being. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, it does. And I and I you just mentioned something there, you know, around and I think this is really interesting. Okay, around how other people like help in this situation, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so like there's a lot of people that I know that suffer with um, ADHD in a beautiful way, actually. They are some of the most successful people I know out there. Some of the most like amazing founders have ADHD. Mm -hmm. But for people that maybe suffer with this um, and haven't got to that realization of where you've got to, where you seem to like really understand yourself and manage it, how can others help in that situation around this as well? Because that's also really key because also sometimes you know some people might react in the wrong way which could actually right. really hurt that individual
0: you know um i just want to j- jump in and cuz i you would ask about adhd i didn't talk about adhd i think adhd is one of my favorite topics i think <laughs> neurodivergence is very much a feature not a bug for humans i think we need all sorts of different kinds of brains um i think adhd brains those who are on the autism spectrum those with dyslexia, they, these are things that we have evolved because we need a wide variety of ways of humans thinking. The same way that some people are naturally night owls, because back in the day, it made sense to have a couple people who were like wide awake at night to have you know a little eye out for whatever animals may be creeping around and. I think with my ADHD, I have come to really treasure it because my brain moves in ways that other people's don't, maybe who don't have ADHD and are more linear thinkers, which means that I can make creative connections that other people can't make. Uh, One of my friends who's an artist was saying, you know, to be an artist is kind of to be a little bit more sensitive because you can perceive things in the world that others can't. So I think for anyone with ADHD, there can be so much frustration and so much struggle. For me, the the really helpful things that i can do are are find those little ways that i can try to keep myself as organized as possible like having really specific locations i have a little keychain that it's like a little looks like a little birdhouse that sticks to the wall and then the keychain is a bird who sits in the birdhouse and so that makes me think oh my keys want to live in the house so that's where they mm-hmm. go trying to be create as many structures for myself as possible where Mm -hmm. I am, you know, creating backups upon the backups. Um, But I think for other people, you know, how you can support someone with ADHD, I will say that some of our behavior can be incredibly frustrating, mostly to ourselves, but certainly also to others. And my boyfriend is such a supportive and wonderful person. But, you know, I think sometimes it can be confusing to others as to why we can't remember where an object is that we had in our hand 30 seconds ago which makes things like leaving the house extremely difficult because we don't know where all of the items are. One way that my boyfriend supports this, and I think this might just be a natural talent of his, is having a a shocking recall of where I have left things in my life. Like he just notices when I put something down. And so I'll be like, do you know where the Bluetooth speaker is? And he's like, it is on your upstairs vanity and you stood it upright. And I'm like, And then I get up there and, and it is indeed there Um, understanding that messiness or our lack of organization or our always being five minutes late um, can really look like, like we're not being considerate. And the truth is, is that if I knew the ways to be that extremely conscientious, always on the ball person, I really would be, I would treasure that. Um, and so just having that patience and that flexibility and sort of gently encouraging um, something wonderful that he does is he's noticed that like if he starts even slightly tidying my house, I like become the little Tasmanian devil and I'm in a rush just getting everything as clean as can be for people in your life who have uh, mood disorders whether that be depression unipolar depression or bipolar depression just checking in and and if they're in a low point make giving them outs you know I will text a friend and say hey I know things are really hard right now don't worry about texting me back but just know that I love you and I'm here and then you know do it again the next week uh because something that I found is people would check in on me and instead of feeling oh people love me they care about me I would think god you're such a shitty friend You didn't text them back. That's just one more bad thing about you. So making it really easy and low low stress and telling them, you don't need to give me anything right now. Let me just give you something.
1: I honestly think taking that pressure off as well is so important because I guess if someone is really struggling with their mental health, adding another pressure is another layer that someone has Mm -hmm. to think about. And, you know, you really did hit an all-time low through your book. And I'd really recommend anyone to, like, Read that because it is so vulnerable and you write from such a, a vulnerable place, which is really inspiring to read, actually, kind of as you've come through with this all. What I really want to get to the crux of this is obviously we've mentioned about reflecting and how that can help someone's mental health. And especially because, you know, I have so much admiration because you've written three books and you also you know, have got ADHD, which is an incredible superpower, but also it's very hard to sit down and write in that process as well. And so Mm -hmm. to bring in those boundaries that you do, to write that is critically important, but then writing it from a personal point of view is even more harder. So what would you say are the prompts to get people started on this reflection process? I feel like you're one of the best people to ask in this area on this.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, I, I think I'm one of the worst. I, I will say, you know, I, I don't know how helpful of an answer this is. You know, the reason I wrote books that I is because, you know, my, my profession is to be a writer. It's not to necessarily say that you have to write a book-length book length thing uh in order to to process or to you know move forward but for me um you know with big projects and it, it is always so key to break it down into chunks most of the time editors want the whole book with all of my editors I have said that that will not work for me because I will wait until the last four weeks and then hand in something very slapdash let's have structured meetings, you know, and structured deadlines for every chapter where we're getting together before the chapter. I'm talking through what I want to do in that chapter. I'm going and doing it. I'm writing the chapter and then I'm handing it to you. And meanwhile, maybe you've handed back the last chapter so I can do edits on that because other, that so that keeps me moving along. I like to think about who is my audience? Where are they reading this? Why are they reading this? How can I make something for that person that will be good. And then sort of work backwards from there. You know, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was from one of my friends who's a fellow author who hosts a wonderful podcast called You Are Not So Smart that you would actually really enjoy about all sorts of like cognitive biases and things that we have. But he said, you know, 98% of people are not going to read your book or be interested in your work. And that is fine. That's actually not bad, not a bad thing at all. And think about yourself. You know, I am uninterested in listening to probably 98% of songs out there. I am uninterested in 98% of the books out there. And that's okay. You're writing for that 2%. You're writing for those people with whom it will resonate. So really thinking about who you're creating this for, I think, can be a really useful process. You know, I'm, I'm a professional communicator, and whether something is small or big, if I'm making it for the other, I think, okay, what do I want people to to think? What do I want them to feel? And what do I want them to do when they're done with this? Like, what are those takeaways? Like, what is the knowledge that we're imparting? What is the emotion or the connection? And what are the useful things, hopefully, in their life that they can move forward with? Um, and that can be very simple. I would like you to know that, the play at Linfield is opening on September 9th. I would like you to feel that you want to go to that play and I would like you to buy a ticket to the play, you know, or it can be something much larger and more complex. But for me, that framework really works when I'm in the process of creating.
1: And so what were those three answers to the book that you just wrote for yourself? What was it that you wanted to gain from the audience? And what was it that you wanted then to be struck by?
0: you know i wanted the audience to to know a lot more about mental health and how it can be extremely situational you know and and it is extremely situational you know just like our our physical health you know uh the the surrounding and experiences and things that are happening in our life can really take someone who maybe has had you know mental health challenges in the past and really exacerbate them and make them Take them to a critical point. I wanted them to know that things can really fall apart, even if they look great from the outside. I wanted them to know a little bit more about how ADHD and how bipolar depression look in women, because we so often use men as the baseline. And we so often assume that uh, unipolar depression is the standard, whereas really it's, they're thinking more and more that it's probably not. So that's what I wanted them to sort of know. And have those tools. Yeah. What I wanted them to feel was that even if they were in a really dark place in their life, that they could keep moving through it, that hope is a moral imperative that we all must stick with, that you can, you are more resilient than you imagine yourself to be until you're called upon for that resilience. And what I wanted them to do, I mean, you know, it's not like adulting where there was lots of prescriptive things, but I did want people to understand a little bit more about the healthcare system in America, about the importance of community and how they can build it in their own lives and the ways that we can find little things to do like making lucky paper stars in the meantime when things are quite bleak.
1: I am so happy that you got into the cross because for me it's like it's one of those biggest acts of self-care that you can do for ourselves and so many of us really struggle to ignite self-care because we kind of think about it as a big thing like oh I'm going to go and book a big spa day or I'm going to go and do all these things that are extravagant and actually what you've basically honed into is like those simple things that you can do every day for yourself like Mm -hmm. making crafts focusing on your mind on one thing and kind of taking it away from the destructive mindset and actually just building yourself back up
0: and for you that was crafts and I think just hearing that's super empowering yeah, and actually, you know, when I was out of the hospital, I made myself a little bored of things that I could do in 10 minutes that I knew would be good for me. Like, take my sweet dog on a walk around the block. Uh, reach out and text a friend with whom I hadn't been in much contact recently. Spend 10 minutes tidying a certain area of my house that's been stressing me out. And I, I would literally, like, give myself little stars on it, you know, and not that I had to do each one of them every day. But, you know, you think about, people talk about self-care and of course we think about bubble baths or spa days and that is, it's nice to treat yourself, but that I think is different than what I think of as sort of like mental health hygiene, which are the little day in, day out things that are both actions you can take in terms of moving your body, interacting with other people, uh, you know, being with your pet versus sort of like your interior thoughts and emotions Mm -hmm. and getting used to just sort of having an ongoing dialogue with your brain of, you know, like, okay, well, that's a thought. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's, that's Mm -hmm. one thing that you could think about yourself, you know? And I, there's a great quote that someone's kindergartner heard that's like, you know, think of a pond and think of the koi fish in it as your feelings and try to be the water. So you just let it basically like float over it. Yeah, I mean, just realizing that your emotions, your thoughts, they just come. They don't particularly mean anything. They don't have Mm -hmm. any real significance outside whatever you give to them. You know, I remember there was one time when I was in Midtown Manhattan And I hate Midtown Manhattan with all of my heart. It's a very difficult place to be. It's quite unpleasant. It's where Times Square is. It's where most of the publishers are. There's very tall buildings. There's all these like finance bros on city bikes that are zooming you down. There's random steam garbage vents. And on this occasion, it was raining. I didn't have a coat and my feet were quite wet. And I was thinking about how much I hate Midtown Manhattan. And I was like, this is the worst place in the world. I thought about everything I just told you. I can't believe I'm here. I hate being here. My feet are cold, blah, 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 on and on and on all of my thoughts about Midtown Manhattan. And then something in my head was like, so what? Okay. You don't like Midtown Manhattan. That's fine. You're here for another four hours. So if you're unhappy you don't have a coat, you've got money in your bank account, go get a $40 coat from Forever 21 and put it on and get some new socks and put those on too so your feet are dry. And then just go to your meetings. It doesn't matter what you think of Midtown Manhattan because you're here, mm-hmm. you know? And, and unfortunately, that's the case with a lot of things is that it doesn't really matter what I think about a given thing because nobody's asked me. So I may as well just be a, try to be a, a little uh, stiff upper lip about it, as y'all would say.
1: Well, yeah, the Sifford is definitely a British mentality, but I think so much about what you mentioned there, right? About the water and the koi. It's a really interesting thing, and I see this a lot from a clinician perspective. Is so many of us are scared of our feelings that there's this Mm -hmm. fear that ignites, and you did a, a. you know, a good analogy there where you were just like, actually I had all of these thoughts and then I just thought, so what? And you kind of met them head on. And it can be really hard to do that because we're not taught about meeting our feelings head on. But there is an innate fear that can come over us when we have a mix of emotions because we're not actually taught on how to process them at all, becoming an adult, or even as an adult, unless, you know, you've had a lot of therapy where you're kind of taught mm-hmm. through these emotions. But a lot of us actually kind of just shut down. Or become frozen because yeah. we don't understand how to process them.
0: Yeah, I was very lucky. Uh, my grandmother was a Zen Buddhist, uh, and which was very a unique, very unique choice for a uh, former Catholic in Southern Louisiana. Uh, and she wouldn't really talk to me that much about it. Like I would always ask her to tell me about it, and she's like, "Well, you can read if you, you know, if you're really interested." But I, I did get and read many of her books, and um, you know, I think sitting with your feelings is one of the most important things that you can do. You can just be, think, I feel very sad right now. I feel very sad right now. And realizing that those feelings aren't ultimately real, that they won't kill you, that no matter how painful it is, you can sit next to them and just abide by them. And then like all feelings, there's there's not one feeling I've ever felt forever, whether it's happiness or sadness or anger or anything, they, they come and they go. And that, that is very helpful for me. Something else that is very helpful for me is uh, another practice called sort of labeling my thoughts where a lot of times I get in a loop about something. And so really like taking a step back for myself and thinking I'm going to make up a name. You know, I'm hangry, having an angry thought about Katie. I'm having an angry thought about Katie. I'm annoyed at Katie. You know, you realize that you're just having the same dialogue with yourself over and over and that mm-hmm. can kind of really help take away the power of that particular thought, whatever it might be.
1: Yeah, it's like basically breaking the circuit, isn't it? And trying to actually like reignite a different circuit, which is so, so important because that actually drives a lot of like stress and frustration.
0: And taking away the immediacy of like saying I'm having a thought reminds you that this is just a little cognitive process. These are just two neurons firing. This is not who you are. This is not Mm -hmm. a state of Kelly. This is a little thing that's happening in... Kelly's head for a moment
1: and so like as I'm kind of thinking about this you know all that you've accomplished and you know and putting yourself out there personally which is a really hard thing I think I try and speak from the most honest true place on this show Um, but you know a question that I had and it's one that I think about all the time is you know would you do it all again I'm so happy that we've teamed up with Blumen for this season of the podcast to claim your free month of natural mushroom-based supplements. Head to blumen.co.uk and use the code LWBW1000 to try it for free. There is a link in the show notes.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love my life so much, there's not a thing I would change. Because if I were to change anything, even some of the more difficult parts, then it means that I wouldn't be in the place that I am now.
1: I love that. Like, literally no regrets. And I think that no. is one of the best things about any growth mindset is actually, like, anything that could be a regret, you look at it as a
0: learning and it never becomes a failure. Yeah. And I opened that book with um, with a quote from uh, the Stoic philosopher Seneca. Uh, and it's... Um, from his letter, Consolation to uh, Helvetia, which was his mother after he had been exiled. And he said, all your sorrows have been wasted upon you if you have not yet learned how to be wretched, which I think about a lot, you know, and, and having learned how to be in that wretched state And really just be wretched for a little bit because sometimes you are wretched and sometimes you are wonderful. And that is the course of life for all of us. We are all sometimes wretched, and being good at being wretched when the time comes can be quite helpful. And I really try not to let my sorrows be wasted upon me. I don't think any of them are. I think all of them, you know, have contributed to who. The parts of myself that I'm most proud of, which is my resilience my, and my optimism that I can mm. I can get through things, even things that seem very difficult or impossible, because I have gotten through things that are very difficult.
1: I mean, more than difficult. <laughs> Just want to add in there, I feel like you're dumbing that down a little bit. And honestly, I think you mentioning the word resilience is something you mentioned a lot on this show. And it brings me into one of my Inner Circles, we have an Apple subscriber um, group on Apple mm-hmm. Podcasts, and it's something that I really wanted to bring to the forefront for our inner circle that's subscribed to the show, because, you know, we spoke about this in our pre-call, and Resilience is something that we speak about a lot on this show, but, you know, f- for yourself, and what you've been through, and obviously everyone listening to our kind of full conversation, how can people learn to be more resilient and face challenges? What's the advice that you would give to people um, now after what you've gone through? Like what are kind of your key takeaways here? If you want to listen to that, head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to my channel. For now, Kelly, my final question is what does Live Well Be Well mean to you?
0: I think uh, for me, it's just the little day in, day out things, you know, it's, it's every moment thinking. Okay, what's what's the right thing to do right here? How do I focus on what I'm doing without you know thinking about the past or being stressed about the future? I think it is moving my body. I think it is being with people. I think it is. Well, I wish I could say it was good nutrition. You would not believe the horrific things I I eat. Um. So I'm not there yet on live well. I can be well. help I, you about.
1: I can help you with that one. Oh
0: no, darling! I'm already doing so much. Let me let me have my bad little snacks and treats, please. Um, but maybe maybe in my 40s that'll be part of it. And and then being well is is you know being content with wherever you are, finding finding what makes you happy about it, finding what brings you joy about it.
1: Yeah, I love that. You know, bringing joy is something we so much overlook, um, and so I actually think getting people to figure out what brings them joy is actually quite a hard question. So I think that is a really beautiful answer. So Kelly, thank you so much.
0: It's been wonderful, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Thank you for thinking of me. Yeah,
1: I'm going to watch out for what's next for you. But um, in the meantime, have a lovely week. Thank you for all the wonderful things you do. I've got a quick question for you before you go. Are you ready to reset your health? If you've been listening to my podcast or watching my YouTube channel for a while, you'll know that I believe everyone's wellbeing journey is totally unique and it needs to be tailored to you. But sometimes with all that important information out there, it's tough to know what to listen to, what to ignore or to prioritise. How to make the best decision for you. It means taking that first step just gets put off, delayed, or even ignored. But I'm here to help, and I am so excited to offer you my 30-day mini course to help revitalize, restore, and totally reset your health so you can discover the happiest of you. Your journey might include harnessing your breathwork and mindfulness game, changing up your diet for healthier meals, or simply improving your daily habits to be healthier and happier. Whatever your decision, my course is the perfect jumpstart you need and you'll get access to the course for a one-off payment for just 14 99 Just click the link in the description or visit my website and I'll see you there. Thanks for listening.